This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry. We are your primary source of news, trends, and developments in eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and uniform relocation. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Bennett. Okay, guys. If you didn't listen to part one of this two-part series, just go back to the last episode that's about the Brooklyn Bridge. This is one of the most fascinating stories I've ever heard. I can't stop thinking about it, but you're going to be a little behind if you're starting here. Thanks for coming, but go back one episode and start there. Right, Dave? Yes, we have Professor Greg Jackson back with us. He's going to finish the story. He's going to finish the story. We laid out his bio last episode and how we got to know Professor Jackson, and here we go. But first, we want to thank our longtime sponsor, Pendulum Land Services, for their continuing support of Infrastructure Junkies. They keep supporting us, and we keep making podcasts. Thank you, Pendulum Land Services. Find them at PendulumLand.com. PendulumLand.com. Professor Jackson, I know the answer to this. And this is a tongue-in-cheek question. Okay. So what did they do? Did they drive a backhoe down into the caisson to dig up the bottom of the river? Man, they wish, huh? Yeah. They're digging with friggin' old-school shovels. Yeah. And and this isn't sometimes there's sand, sure. At other times, this is hard clay. And they'll hit rocks. We're talking big rocks, more like boulders. These things could be six feet across. And what do you do when that boulder is smack dab in the middle of where that case needs to descend? Initially, they chip at it because they're terrified of exploding something. Think about this. You're a worker who is now at the bottom of the East River. You don't know the exact figure at any given time, but tens of thousands of tons of stone over your head. Oh gosh. Pressing that case in down, right? Mm-mm. The last thing you feel like doing, right, is exploding something. But the work is so slow. They're moving an inch a day that Washington Roebling, Washi, as his wife called him, they had a loving relationship. I think that's fun to bring into play. It's adorable. Washi. Washi. <laughs> washi. He's colonel to most people, but at home, it's Washi. First of all, I want to talk about what a badass Washi is. Because he doesn't delegate this stuff, right? He could tell some poor schmuck, hey, I want you to go down to the case and we're going to experiment with exploding stuff. Tell me how it goes. <laughs> That's what I would do. <laughs> yep, bye. Right. Good luck with that. Maybe this comes from being a Civil War veteran, right? He says to himself, no, I'm going to take this risk. He goes down and he takes a gun with him and he fires a handgun just to see what, in the case, what happens. Inside just in to the see case. what happens. Yep. Ha- well, what Cause, happened? Because he wants to, this is a small explosion, right? You've got powder reacting, the bullet explodes out of the chamber. So to him, that made a lot more sense as an experiment than blowing actual dynamite under the frigging casing. We're going to start small. Precisely. Okay. I would uh, take have... a bottle rocket or a black cat or something. Right. That's, that seems like starting small. <laughs> Down at the bottom of the East River, several feet underneath the East River by this point, in fact, right? Just firing off a handgun and going... Okay, I'm still alive. Great. Let's go ahead and try some TNT. I'm not so quite dead they, yet. 
Exactly. Yes. To come back to that. So they end up drilling not too uh, different from how the Transcontinental Railroad progressed as, as the Central Pacific and the army of Chinese workers were tunneling for them through the Sierra Nevadas through granite were punching small holes with chisels into this stone, sliding a stick of dynamite in it, lighting it up and boom. So that's what they start to do finally. And of course, it's everyone braces. Water rushes in as air bubbles fluctuate. Oh gosh. Oh, my God. I already yeah. know how this ends and I'm nervous. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, this is terrifying. In my mind, the day-to-day workers whose names by and large are lost other than the ones who died, these people are heroes. This is incredible. This is what I mean by taking risks that today we wouldn't even dream of doing. And they're like, sure, I'll do that for crap pay. Right, right, right. (laughs) So they're moving at an inch a day. They're moving that casein down through the river bottom at about an inch a day. How far do they think they have to go? Again, the brilliantly educated and naturally intelligent Roeblings have figured that out. The Brooklyn casein needs to go 44 and a half feet down because that's where bedrock is. So that's what they do. And with the explosions, they're able to move things a little bit quicker. So things pick up. And finally, they do reach 44 and a half feet. The Brooklyn casein was launched, if you will, put into the East River in March of 1870. The casein itself was in position about a year later. It took until March of 1871 to get it that 44 and a half feet down. That's, I'm sorry, that's the Brooklyn Tower? Yeah, the Brooklyn casing, right? And they're building a tower on it the whole time. The tower itself won't be complete until 1875. So are they only doing one casing and tower at a time? They start with one and yes, both towers are being worked on at the same time, but they get the one case in Brooklyn done. Then they go to the New York case. And the New York casing is far more dangerous because bedrock is far deeper. So Mm. as they go deeper, they're also finding that the men are getting sicker. As any scuba diver could actually detail for you in far greater detail, the deeper you go underwater and you're experiencing that increased pressure, it does some things to your system. And if you come up too quickly from that, then it releases little nitrogen air bubbles into your bloodstream. And depending on where those air bubbles may or may not go, it can be it can damage your health and it can be something you get over. It can be uh, something that you never recover from entirely. You'll feel weak and screwed up for the rest of your life, or it could just kill you. So these guys are going down there risking their lives and they're dealing with what we know as the bins. But at the time, from what I understand, they didn't know what the bins was. They didn't know nitrogen was involved or anything no, like that. And they were calling no it ca- casein disease. Is that correct? They, they call them the bins and they call it casein's disease. Because all, all they know is that if you go and work down in the casein, right, some people get hit with it. They'll be in the same group as someone else. Nine of the workers will be fine. And one of them is going to just drop over dead walking home that night. So did a lot of people die with the bins? Not a lot on the Brooklyn casing because they only went to 44 and a half feet. They were just Mm. starting to see a little bit of some serious ramifications in terms of health. On the New York casing, Washington Roebling is insistent. He gets a doctor on hand. The doctor's doing his best. He's really among the best out there. But just as I'm sure 100 years from now, medical practitioners will look back at some of the things we do today and be like, wow, can you believe that people used to die of cancer? What was wrong with them? I can't wait till that happens. (laughs) Come on. I know. Hey, you and me both. But at this point, all they know is that these guys are dying. So you've got this doctor, scientific method. He's just trying to figure it out. And so he's giving them advice, like lay off the alcohol. Like that could probably be good. But you're going to go work in a casein and then not have a cold beer at the end of the day? That's exactly right. That's one of the first things these workers, they get out. Yeah. This is also a world where we don't understand germ theory yet. 
And uh, something that I think a lot of Americans miss is when we look at the alcohol consumed in the 19th and the 18th century. Yeah, because beer doesn't kill you. Water has dysentery in it. So of (laughs) course, everyone drinks beer. They might not know the science behind it. But what they do know is that when John drank some water from that slow moving stream, he got dysentery and never recovered. But when everyone drinks from this beer, that's only even just a few percentage points, right? It's like 5% alcohol or whatever. No one dies. So yeah, better to be buzzed all day than have dysentery. Wow. If you were to go back to colonial times, a lot of people, again, they don't know the science behind it, but they do know that before they drink water, they're going to pour a little bit of hard alcohol into it because they seem to not get sick. These are also people that knew if you go across a bridge, there's a one in four chance it's just going to collapse collapse, into the water. And these guys, so these guys, and I saw somewhere they were called sand hogs. That's correct. That's a term that will develop later. So that term's not being used during the construction. But remember that it's not long after this, you've got the New York subway being built. We're going to use caissons and other bridges. So working deep underground is a new thing. This is what I mean where kind of like when my kids, if I introduce them to an old movie, you know, they'll be like, oh, well, that's such an old trope. And I'm going, no, this is the one that set the trope. You think it's an old trope (laughs) because this movie was so badass, it invented the idea. So the Brooklyn Bridge, it's inventing this idea of people working this deep underground. Right. And later that term will develop. Okay, so people are getting sick, sometimes being paralyzed, dying. Does this change what's happening with the New York Tower? Here's the thing, you, you can't have it not go sufficiently deep, right? Or the tower's gonna collapse. So they keep building, the doctor keeps Close records keeps watching things, but the deeper they go, the more severe the bends is going to get because the greater the change. Now, the doctor does notice, it seems to be that people who wait in the compression chamber, if they take a longer time coming up, and this is what any scuba diver who's listening is gonna be nodding going, yes, of course, you gotta come up slowly. That's what prevents the bends. Right. But as the doctor saying, you know what? Everyone needs to just slow down at the rate they're coming out. No one wants to do it. No one's willing to. This just sounds like some theory from the doctor. And think about even today, how many times do doctors tell people, this is what you should do for your health? And we go, yeah, sure, that's great. I'm not going to exercise daily. I'm not going to do A, B, or C. Right. Same thing with these workers. They just want to get up. They've been down in this hell that is the casein for a 12-hour day. Yeah, They don't want to stand around in a compression chamber for 30 minutes. And the doctor's only suggesting five. Wow. That's it. They, they were thinking five minutes could make the difference. They're like, no, we got to go up and get our vodka and stream water. Pretty much. So they're getting out as quick as they can by and large. Even what the doctor's recommending is still way too brief. We know that today. The doctor, he was brilliant enough to start to even put that together within a, a matter of you know, weeks, months. But no one really listens. Everyone keeps flying out. The bridge company, of course, is happy to have people move out quickly. They don't want to incur the cost of people taking forever to stand around. Now you got to pay workers to just be in the compression chamber for five well, that minutes. Sounds terrible. For five, we got to pay them for five minutes to stand. Well, hey, when, when you're talking about hundreds of people, yeah. right? The pennies start adding up. How many so, people, do you know how many people went down there per day to dig out the river bottom? Per day, a few hundred. Any really? given shift would have, so they'd have three shifts in a day and your typical shift had a little over a uh, hundred forgive me. I think they might've actually done an eight hour shift. Forgive me that it wasn't 12. Hey, if I'm off on any small minutia, you could always go listen to the episode where I've... Or tweet you know. at H 
Yes, T- tweet D- angry S- things. Pod. That's always good. Yes. <laughs> Just don't tweet That's us. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Between the three uh, ongoing shifts, right? They work around the clock. You would have a few hundred men down there every single day. At a time. That's amazing. Washington's a guy who's involved and wants to get down there and fire a gun to make sure it's safe to have an explosion. What does he do about this? He continues to try and urge people to listen to the doctor. He himself goes up and down into these casings to check on things. In fact, the Brooklyn casing actually had a fire towards its, uh, the end of construction. Think about how terrifying that is. Here you are working in what feels like hell already in terms of how below you are. Now you've got flames leaping out of the ceiling of the casing. So he goes down and it's... <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I, I'm calling out. I'm calling out for the rest of my career. Right. So they have to pull back and they're just hoping that the metal parts of the casing hold together as they're stripping away wood. By the way, probably worth clarifying that these casings, when they're done, and they do clear out all the fire damage, they fill them with concrete. So to this day, what you have underneath the Brooklyn Bridge are these primarily wooden casings, but they don't rot because they're deep under the actual water line. So they are air and compact dirt, but it's wood. And that wood is then filled with concrete. And that's what the Brooklyn Towers are standing on. And, and the wood still to this day, 150, 60, yes. 70 years later, doesn't rot? Correct. So what about, you said the Brooklyn Tower. What about the New York Tower? So the New York Tower, it keeps going deeper and deeper. We're into the 70s in terms of feet of depth. Again, point of comparison, Brooklyn only went to 44 and a half. They still have not hit uh, bedrock. And we're starting to see deaths very regularly. And as Washington does the math, he realizes that his handful of deaths from Kaysen's disease, ballpark wants to say we're probably around a dozen or so at this point, but within that dozen, most of them have happened within just the last few weeks. And he's looking at this exponential increase with the increase of deaths. And he realizes he will have hundreds of workers die if he actually goes to bedrock. So he makes the most terrifying decision of his career. He says, we're stopping at 77 and a half feet. So the New York Cason, that New York Tower, which weighs 90,000 tons, it is sitting on a wooden Cason that is in sand. Like still today? Still. To this day. It never reached bedrock. He did the math, checked himself a million times, and noted that the geographical records showed that strata of sand was very hard packed that it had not been disrupted in millions of years, no shifts whatsoever. And this to me is the most terrifying thing. Imagine being a 19th century engineer, and perhaps this is part of why bridges failed as often as they did. You don't have cool computer models that can simulate things and and test it out. You get one shot. It's real life. That's it. And he makes the decision, we're stopping my math says that this should be safe. The thing that jumps into my mind is that did he have the authority to make that decision? Yeah, he's as chief engineer, he had the authority to make that call. I know today you're probably thinking about all the different uh, <laughs> government agencies that yeah, would come in yeah. and flag this. To make and, that sort of a decision that could tank this project that has gone on for years now and he took over from his father and people have died is just astounding. And you raised a good point. So I don't think we've established this. How long did construction take of the Brooklyn Bridge? Oh, overall, so we get cracking in late 1869. And then we're the bridge opens in 1883, so ballpark 14 years. Yeah, a long time. A long time. So we've talked about the Casins and how dangerous they were. 
And then eventually we're going to be done with the caissons and go up to the cables and what happens above the ground. But what's going on with Washington at this point? So Washington, when he went rushing down to the Brooklyn caisson to deal with that fire, he got a terrible case of the bends. He mostly recovered from that. But then as he's going up and down and up and down in the New York caisson, just before they're done, as he's checking on things down there going, can I really stop this thing without hitting bedrock? Can I really build this impossibly large bridge with one of the tower's foundations sitting in hard packed, but nonetheless sand, he gets another devastating case of the bends and he never recovers. He's bedridden almost entirely for the rest of his life. We haven't built the whole bridge yet. So he's already taken over for his, his father who died from the toe incident, which I don't really like to think about. Now we've got Washington Roebling with a terrible case of the bends. He never fully recovers. And you said bedridden. Who's in charge now? So Washington remains as the chief engineer in his apartment in Brooklyn. If you've seen the old, oh my gosh, what's the name of that film? It's got Jimmy Stewart, where he's got a telescope. He's watching his neighbor through the window. Isn't that okay, what, you, well, what you do at night, Kristen? Not anymore. <laughs> I stopped a while ago. Yeah, I got tired of it. Jimmy Stewart, if you're familiar with that film, is basically what Washington Roebling's doing from here on out. He is watching this bridge get built from his bedroom window with a telescope. Now, of course, it is pretty much impossible, right? You don't have walkie-talkies. You don't have cell phones. There's no way for him to communicate with people down there on the bridge. So if he's going to be continuing to be a chief engineer of any sort, and there are absolutely parties and power interests that are saying, it's time for Washington Roebling to make his exit. We appreciate what he's done. That's great. He can't do this. His wife steps in. Emily, she's a brilliant woman. She's always had a, a very excellent mind. It's one of the things that Washi's always loved about her. And she becomes his mouthpiece, relaying information to his various underlings. But in time, she needs to be able to explain my point about being a historian and suddenly I have to understand pneumatic case and if I'm going to do justice to that history. But I couldn't imagine having to actually build a freaking pneumatic case. And that's a whole nother level of depth and no pun intended on understanding cases to build them, not just explain them abstractly. Emily basically teaches herself, I'm sure Washi helped, but she teaches herself advanced math and engineering to be the ghost chief engineer. What? Did you know that Pendulum Land Services is a small, women-owned, DBE-certified right-of-way company? It's a full services company, but they'll happily jump onto a project to assist with difficult issues, especially complex relocations. They won't go down in the caissons, but they will get down in the weeds with you and your team. Find them at PendulumLand.com, PendulumLand.com. Let me get this straight. So Washi, our beloved Washi, is not yet dead. From, not doing so right, well either. But not doing so hot from the bends. And he's, from what I understand, he was in Brooklyn Heights, and he was looking out of his window with a telescope at the bridge construction and would communicate with his wife, Emily, who would be sometimes on site and relaying the messages or the orders. And basically she's the interim, if you will, chief engineer. But she doesn't have an engineering degree. What's happening? And she's a woman in the 1800s. She couldn't even vote. She couldn't even vote. But she's constructing the Brooklyn Bridge. Let me ask you a question. Why, when we talk about like feminism and women in history, why why does everybody not know the name of Emily Roebling? 
My honest answer is I have no damn idea. One thing that I noticed as I was on the Brooklyn Bridge just yesterday, they've got a big plaque of important people that was put up a long time ago. So this is not a reflection of present day New York, but they're very large. Of course, it was John Roebling with a cross next to his name, right? Indicating death. And underneath him is Washington Roebling and a whole slew of others. I did not see Emily Washington uh, credited. <gasps> really? Honestly, my first thought was that is BS. She should absolutely be on there. And it wasn't like she took over for the last couple months and she like cut the ribbon or something like she was, this was like years, correct? Yeah. We're talking early 1870s still. And the, the bridge is a decade plus out from being completed. Now I would certainly say the Casins were the, I don't know if I should say it was the hardest part, but it's right up there with running the cables, apples and oranges. I don't know if I can quite make a fair comparison between the two, but Emily is essentially running the show, not in name, but in practicality for a decade. Okay, so let's talk about the strings, which are holding the bridge up. Um, <laughs> no, I love that you reduced the strings. Yeah, now, before we, uh, and you said something earlier about how the rope industry was mad about the cable industry. I wonder if, when the rope industry came along, the yarn industry got upset. Or thread I mean, industry got the upset. Thre the thread industry, yes. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. Like, the Brooklyn Bridge is, does not exist with hemp. Right, no, like, right, hey, right. Like, come on. Right. But yeah, what, could you imagine that? What I want to clarify is, I understand, and I think you can clarify this for me, is let's talk about the roadbed that it was hold, that the cables, yarn, hemp, whatever, was going to hold up. It's not just a road, but my understanding was it was going to hold up a rail line which could support locomotives. That is, yeah. <laughs> sort of right? Yeah. they not all um, the way? No, I mean, there's discussion early on as to whether or not they're going to have rail going over the Brooklyn Bridge. But even before the Brooklyn Bridge, you've got other bridges. The bridge that John Roebling built up at Niagara, it has a railroad included in it. And it's a suspension bridge. And one of the things that screws up the timeline for construction is that they think of putting rail on it kind of late in the game. So that means having to rethink some stuff. But yeah, that, that's going to be on there. They're looking at two roads essentially for uh, carriages and, and horses with uh, a light rail in the middle and then a pedestrian bridge that, or path that's passing above all of that on another level above it. So yeah, hemp is not going to hold. And let me get this straight. Before, we're going to be using John... It was John Roebling's kind of invention, or he didn't invent it, but his idea of these strands of metal that form these ropes out of steel. And what we've seen before with suspension bridges was iron and like chains, right? Like, so totally correct. different concept. Is that correct? Yeah. So we also need to remember that steel is really hitting its heyday as we get into the second half of the 19th century. The first time we saw steel get used on a major level was in Pennsylvania, with Andrew Carnegie, for those who want to mispronounce his name, and his Keystone Bridge Company. And that's building a bridge for, for the Pennsylvania Railroad. Producing steel on a large level is still fairly new, and that's where they're still going to use a lot of iron in the anchoring system. There are several tons of massive iron plates with massive iron links within each of the anchors, each of which is basically the size of a large building. Picture a six-story stone building. So the, the anchors alone that people don't think about it at all today. I walked by those when I was 
uh, at the bridge last week, chain link fences and a whole bunch of keep out and it looks utterly abandoned and uh, forgotten. And frankly, they're massive works of architecture in and of themselves. And that's those anchors are what the steel cables, which to give you the skinny on that really quickly, you've got multiple wires run together to form one strand, basically a steel rope, and then 19 steel ropes, which are all woven, you know, individual strands are then woven together within those anchors before they come out. And and those are are what the four main cables are. So each of those main cables, those are 15 and three quarter inch in diameter. And each one contains about 5,000 plus individual wires in it. Those and those wires run across the whole bridge and then back. So they, they double over. The total length of wire, we're looking at about 3,500 miles. If you took all the wires in the Brooklyn Bridge and just laid them out next to each other, yeah, it, it'd shoot way past the length of this nation. You have got to be kidding me. That's insane. Okay, so is this something... So the, like, if you go to the Brooklyn Bridge today and you look up and you see these wires or these ropes or these... Strings. <laughs> Have they had to replace I love strings. Them? We'll stick with strings. Let's stick with strings. Have these been yeah. replaced over the years, many times over? Or is this like, that's um, the stuff that Emily was overseeing? The stuff. That's the stuff Emily was overseeing. Wow. Is it not corroding? What's happening up there? And, and it's also why they want to steal. Right. And, okay. Which begs the question, what's the difference? What's the significance of the difference between iron and steel vis-a-vis these strings or cables? Sure. So... Obviously, an engineer will probably do greater justice to this, but you take iron and put it in, uh, well, uh, Bessemer forges were the thing of, of that day. But you take iron, you melt it, you crank up the heat, and you get a greater degree of the impurities out of it. And the chemical reaction that happens as you're reducing the impurities within the iron turns it into steel. And you now have basically a, a stronger product that's going to be even more resistant to corrosion. So it's harder to make. You've got to have the infrastructure for these these massive... This is what Andrew Carnegie makes his fortune off of as he establishes the steel monopoly, where he has these massive mills with these huge furnaces, the Bessemer-based furnaces, where he's melting iron and cranking out steel. Iron itself has a, a number of different levels, and maybe it's not worth getting into all that, but it all has to do with the degree of quote-unquote purity. So the purer you get, you eventually step over into steel. Now, I understand there's a pretty interesting sub-story about the strings holding up the Brooklyn Bridge, meaning John Roebling had a lot of experience in it and maybe even held some interest in steel-making companies or the string-making companies, but somebody else was awarded the contract, and maybe that didn't go so well. So there were definitely some politics involved here where uh, there were accusations that the Roblings would be basically un- unfair, corruptly taken care of, etc. If they were to, as the family that invented steel rope, heaven forbid we let them do the steel rope since they're also overseeing the project. So it goes to J. Lloyd Haight, who is a Brooklyn-based producer of, of steel rope, and he's cutting every corner. So months after the project started, and there's a lot of wire that's already been run that cannot be taken out, one of them snaps. And it comes to light that he's been running a, a little racket. While some of that wire was perfectly good, any of the wire that didn't meet inspection and was kicked out, he managed to have it snuck back in so that it was still put in the, to the bridge. So he didn't have to suffer any loss of profits. Oh, Now, thankfully, 
John Roebling, in his original design of everything, he over-engineered the capacity of the Brooklyn Bridge. He designed the Brooklyn Bridge to be able to withstand about six times the stress, the weight, everything that he believed it actually needed. So because of that, one, they were able to continue despite some bad wire in there. They knew that it, they would still be okay. Washington's calculations were that the bridge would maybe only be four times stronger what it needs to be as opposed to six times. And it's also part of why the Brooklyn Bridge is able to still function as it does today because, of course, they didn't know automobiles were coming and that you would have tons and tons in terms of just sheer weight of vehicles going across it, not just light rail and carriages being pulled by horses. So the fact that the Brooklyn Bridge can do all that today is because of the over-preparedness of the, the Roebling family. That blows my mind. They're making calculations based on horses and buggies. And here we mm -hmm. are with like cars and trucks and trains and yeah. whatever. And they, they were ready. SUVs, F-150s, or even 18-wheeler freight, right? Right. And so, yeah. and I also think I, I heard on your podcast or read somewhere that those faulty strings, if you will, they're still up there. Yes, they are. Because there was no way for them to even track down or, or, or pull them out at that point. Wow. I'm not walking the Brooklyn Bridge. <laughs> I've done no, it. But, Do it. No. Hey, it's perfectly safe. And this didn't make it into the podcast because you can only fit so many things. But P.T. Barnum, he helps solidify Brooklyn and New York's uh, recalcitrance when he shows up with his famous elephant, Jumbo, and has Jumbo walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. And once Jumbo does it and nothing shakes and everything's good, good. that's when people go, We're good. okay. I this love that. What a great PR move. We're good. Yeah. Barnum knew what's up. Hey, infrastructure junkies. You know we have a pretty niche podcast. Well, we found one that's even nicherer. Nicherer? Nicherer. We love infrastructure. These guys love infrastructure even more, so much that they created a podcast all about just one type of infrastructure, bridges. It's the Bridge Boys podcast. You got to check this out. The whole thing is about the creation and history of different bridges all around the world. The hosts, Jeremy and Andreas, do a great job with their producer, Troy, and we've really been enjoying their episodes. So check them out, and here's a word from the Bridge Boys. Welcome to Bridge Boys. Bridges. My name is Jeremy, and this is my partner in crime, Andreas Papas. That's right. We're here to introduce you to the podcast that takes you on a whirlwind tour of the world's coolest bridges. Yeah, we'll be exploring the history, culture, and engineering that goes into them. So we hope you'll join us on our exploration of all these beautiful bridges. And be sure to subscribe to the Bridge Boys podcast on your favorite podcast player. Yeah, we'll be dropping some new bridge knowledge every Monday starting August 9th. So we'll talk to all of y'all then. Bridges. So I've got a couple of notes here that I want to share. And you can probably add to this is there was just a tremendous human toll as a result of the construction of this bridge. The estimates vary, but there seems to be a consensus that 27 workers died during construction, including John Roebling, who was the ultimate visionary. There was a poor guy by the name of John French who had the top half of his head sheared off by a boom during construction. That's nice. Yeah, another guy who was named Doherty was crushed by a derrick mast. There was the Cason's disease, the Benz, which I understand was horribly 
uncomfortable. It, it, it was described to me as like feeling like your organs or your skin is like, boiling yeah, off your of you. Flesh is tearing or something. It was horrible. Yeah, and you, your your legs would go weak. That was a common symptom. And then you'd lose control of your bowels. So, oh, yeah, okay, pleasant. Um, yes, not the so best you, way you, to you, go. Yeah, you crap yourself and then die. It's very, cool. it's a very dignified way Did to go. Did they put that on the flyers to like advertise to the Irish <laughs> yes. immigrants if you want a job? Well, Uncle Sam, we want yes. you. <laughs> crap <laughs> yourself and, and die. die. Cool. All, cool. All for low pay. <laughs> all for low pay. And meanwhile, we have politics, we have corruption, we have faulty materials, which still exist to this date. But ultimately, my understanding is it opened on May 24th, 1883. And was, there were 14 tons of fireworks which were lit off so to celebrate it. So there was some fanfare. Is yeah, that correct? Absolutely. Good old Washi just stayed in his room through all of it. He didn't make it to the celebration. No, he didn't. Well, and the, the president was there? I was right? going to say my personal favorite yep. president in the history of the United States, Chester A. Arthur, attended. Nice. <laughs> He's the nice. one I always forget when I try yeah. to remember presidents, but he hey, was there. Old, old Chet gets overlooked. He was a very competent president, and that doesn't sound as complimentary as I mean it to be. For someone who was basically seen as an overgrown frat boy who was going to suck, he <laughs> stepped up. He stepped up in a by, very serious way. By coming to the cer- ceremonial groundbreaking of the Brooklyn Bridge. Do you Bridge. have an episode about him? I do, in fact. Yeah. Okay. okay I'm going to check that I out. Am- he was terrified when Garfield was not supposed to die. He was already seen himself. He was a compromised VP candidate. And he was like, wow, I'm honored. I'll, I'll be able to claim I was a vice president. This is amazing. I think Garfield gets shot like three months into his term. He's in tears. He's absolutely horrified that he's president of the United States. Wow. And he just like 180s. He's a totally different person. But he gets to go walk the Brooklyn Bridge at the grand opening. But hey, the grand opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, people died there too, I read. Uh, is that true? Is that true? So yeah, it's so it's not amidst the fireworks, but yeah, right as they open up, someone takes a tumble over on the Brooklyn side and when they fall, they scream, and then someone else falls on top of them. We have a little stack of bodies because so many people are on the bridge at once, and then just panic sets in. So as I said, until P.T. Barnum brings Jumbo across the bridge, there's a little bit of doubt, and some people are afraid. Everyone suddenly goes, oh my gosh, the bridge must be collapsing. That's what's happening on the other side. So then you get this stampede of people trying to get off the bridge, and people just get trampled to death. And I think about a dozen people died. That's, That's what, what I, I read. Yeah, like a dozen people. people died. It's like a rock concert. It was like the Who in Cincinnati, but worse. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. before your time. That was 1979. That's, yeah, yeah. That's before my time. Okay. I do have a question for you. Yeah. Why is this called the Brooklyn Bridge? And not the Manhattan Bridge or not the New York Bridge. So that, that's just a abbreviation that eventually became the official name. It was a, initially known as the New York and Brooklyn Bridge. But as you can imagine, that's a mouthful. And why it became the Brooklyn Bridge as opposed to the New York Bridge, I think this is just me riffing entirely opinion. It's the Brooklynites who actually cared. So before we wrap up, I want to bring something to the surface here. And it's I am absolutely astounded that these cats back in mid-1800s, all right, I don't think they've heard of an automobile yet, certainly not of a semi or a Ford F-350. I think the F-350 didn't come out until the uh, 1880s. Okay, that was the 1880s. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) And so they create this bridge, which based on the discussion today, it feels to me like this thing should have been antiquated by, I don't know, maybe 50 years later. But instead, 
it's still in full operation. You, Professor Greg Jackson, say that you just walked it yesterday. And according to the New York Department of Transportation, as of 2018, that bridge accommodates 116,000 vehicles daily. 116,000 vehicles. That's a huge auto count. And this is a thing that blows my mind, and I'm not sure that I believe this or it's not a typo. It claims to accommodate 30,000 pedestrians a day. 30,000 people are walking across the bridge every day? I'll believe it. It was absolutely crowded. Really? I I walked across. And 3,000 cyclists per day use that bridge. I can't believe it. Greg, please correct me if I'm wrong. But this was built starting in 1869 mm-hmm. entirely by skilled workers with hand tools. Like right. they didn't have any machinery. It was like, I got my pickaxe and I got my wrench and my hammer and I'm going to go build the Brooklyn no, Bridge. The, the only caveat I'd add is skilled and unskilled. But you're right. Like these are hand tools. 100%. I can't even they, imagine. We do have steam engines with those boom derricks, but it's nothing like today. Right. right. Nothing close to it, especially when we think about those cases. Well, I, I just could not imagine chiseling away with a friggin' shovel underneath the East River. Along the same lines, when doing research for this episode, I saw a photograph <laughs> of a couple of guys up on one of the strings, which are really cables, tightening what appear to be enormous lug nuts with an enormous wrench by hand. Like they're tightening the nuts, which hold together the bridge by hand. That hold up 116,000 vehicles a day. Those right. dudes, like Ralph and Joey up there with their wrenches. Exactly. They did Bruno, Brutus, yeah. So, yeah, you will see on the bridge these big tubes, for lack of a better word. The big cables are now encased in a tube. And, yeah, you'll see those big, massive wrenches to tighten up the protective casing that's been put around the 15 and three quarter inch diameter wire cable string. Yeah. (laughs) I got to tell you, this is, this is one of my favorite topics that I've delved into in the last year or so. And I thanks huge. Thanks to your podcast. Again, that's history that doesn't suck. And I will tell our listeners, if you want to hear more and more detail and just one of the best storytelling podcasts I've ever heard in my life. Listen to this episode. It's called The Brooklyn Bridge or The Story of the Roebling Family. You can find that with our friend, Professor Greg Jackson at History That Doesn't Suck. We can follow you on Twitter, right? Absolutely. Yep. Twitter, Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, at Prof Greg Jackson or at HTDS pod. This has been absolutely fascinating. I've listened to your podcast a couple times. I've read articles. We've now done this, and I, I can't get enough of this story. And you're right. What did you say at the beginning? It's an American story. It's the American story. Yeah, it's just a, it's a microcosm. All, all the great and scary and bad things that you might think of when you try and think of the, the large American landscape. It's got everything from innovation to corruption to death, hard work, risk-taking, a lot of the foundational myths that we care so deeply about in the United States, things we like to think of as uh, being who we are and what we're about our daring side. You can find all of it in the Brooklyn Bridge. And in the Roeblings. And the Roeblings. Yeah. All right. Professor Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a blast. Likewise. Thanks for having me. 